This is Dr. Catherine Dowd reporting for Room Now, ULAR 2021. All right, this is exciting, folks. This is oral presentation poster OP0132. It's about precision medicine in lupus, okay? And they talk about abirdamide, I-B-E-R-D-O-M-I-D-E. This is a novel drug, new mechanism of action. It's a high affinity ligand to um, cerebron. And in case you don't know what cerebron is, um, cerebron has been implicated in the genetic predisposition for lupus, and it's overexpressed in lupus B cells. So ibirdamide, um, having such high affinity to cerebron, can promote ubiquination and proteasomal degradation of two very well um, known cerebrons, Icaros and also Iolos. So you might actually know what a cerebron inhibitor is. The most common one is actually thalidomide, right? Now, back in 2020 at the American College of Rheumatology Convergent Conference, Peter Lipsky presented phase two active lupus um, study for this compound. And he found that in the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics of ibiramide, um, the compound was able to inhibit B cell differentiation, type one interferon pathways, it also increased regulatory T cells and levels of IL-2 and IL-10. So um, it suggests that perhaps this compound can rebalance the immune dysregulation. So they did find that patients who are on this compound actually did better compared to placebo. Well, now fast forward, we're looking at skin disease and lupus. With this poster, they studied it in a phase two trial for cutaneous lupus. And these are patients who have pretty significant disease with um, chronic cutaneous lupus, discoid lesions. They also have subacute cutaneous lupus. Um, there's hyperpigmentation and hypopigmentation. And they found that the drug compared to placebo, they can find efficacy as early as four weeks. And this did continue to improve over 24 weeks. Now at 24 weeks, there was actually a high placebo response. So the class C score at that time didn't see seem to be significant. I think more studies are needed because this is actually a very interesting mechanism of action. There was a dose-dependent um, adverse events of neutropenia, infection, and rash with uh, this compound. So something to look out for for the next few years, um, cerebron inhibitors. This is Dr. Katherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hi everyone, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Yus Yusuf uh, from Leeds, uh, UK. Uh, I'm reporting for Room Now um, for this EULA uh, Congress uh, 2021. Uh, today, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by Dr. Lucy Carter uh, from Leeds, UK. Uh, hi, Lucy. Hi, yes. Yes, so um, uh, Dr. Carter um, presented an oral presentation today. Um, in the SLE uh, abstract session. Uh, the abstract uh, 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 number is uh, OP0134. Okay, um, so Lucy, uh, can you please uh, tell us uh, the background of the studies and the objectives? Sure, so um, like a lot of centers, we're familiar with using rituximab for our more resistant uh, SLE patients, um, but we've 
previously observed that, in fact, some cutaneous disease fares less well than other organ systems following rituximab treatment in lupus. Um, and in fact, there's a small group of patients in our centre in whom we've observed actually de novo skin flares or completely new uh, skin lesions after they've been treated with rituximab, which appears quite paradoxical. So we wanted to investigate that a little bit further. Uh, and what we did was use a registry cohort that uh, is a UK-wide multi-centre registry, Biolag Biologics Registry, um, and characterised skin responses in those patients after they'd undergone their first cycle of rituximab treatment. And those patients provided us with whole blood for um, TACMAN PCR evaluating gene expression scores related to type one interferon signature. So we used interferon score B, which is something we've previously described in our group um, and validated, and it's a measure of um, interferon pathway activation. We were really interested to find out whether or not, whether or not we could detect any uh, baseline immunological uh, phenotype for those patients who went on to develop more resistant skin disease. Okay, thank you so much. So it is a prospective uh, in the study uh, from a UK registry, so it's a very strong one. Um, so can you just uh, summarise uh, to us uh, the key findings from your uh, results? Sure. So um, in the registry, we observed similar to how we had observed in our centre, that the majority of patients with mucocutaneous bilag disease um, who were treated with rituximab actually did very well. So more than 75% of them obtained an improvement in their biolag scores um, in the mucocutaneous domain of one or more point, one or more grades. Um, but there was 15% who had either resistant or new bilag A or B disease in the skin. And that was unlike any of the other organ systems that were, you know, as we assessed them, it turned out to be the, the most resistant organ domain in, in, in this cohort. And in fact, it was mucocutaneous disease was the main reason for overall treatment failure in, mm. um, in these patients. So when we characterized how their interferon score behaved according to response, we saw that um, a higher overall uh, whole blood interferon score uh, was associated with an overall therapeutic response, and that was a positively prognostic marker. It didn't have any association with their baseline skin disease, but a lower score B in, in their, their a lower interferon score B at, at baseline picked out a small that small group of patients who had resistant refractory skin disease after rituximab treatment. We thought that that was an interesting finding that might be pointing towards an endotype of, of disease that was more resistant. Mm, that's really uh, an interesting finding. Uh, you know, the resistant cases have lower interference scores. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in, the, in terms of uh, how are you going trying to put this into practice, uh, anything that we, you know, anything that this finding can inform our practice? Yeah, I, I think it's a long way off being a, a directly translational finding. I think what I would say is that shouldn't overall dissuade us from using rituximab in our uh, patients with cutaneous, mucocutaneous disease, because ma majority of patients we observed did do well. Um, but I think it's important to be mindful that this, this can happen and that we, we do see more resistance in the skin than we do impact other organ systems. 
And I think we should be, you know, working towards understanding that really refractory interferon low uh, group of patients a little bit more. Mm, very good. And and lastly, um, so how uh, so? What's your plan for, for for future work following this uh, study results? Yeah, so we're fortunate. While we've used Tacman PCR on whole blood to measure the interferon status of these patients, we've actually got a wider profile of gene expression that we can look at. So we've also got gene expression uh, data coming through re- relating to other um, modules such as plasma blast or inflammatory or myeloid lineage. Um, so those are, you know, we'll be able to add to the uh, to the picture for these patients, really. So I'm looking forward to being able to analyze that. Yeah, we're looking forward you know, to hear from you in as soon as well. Um, so I would like to uh, thank you for your time, for spending time to be interviewed today. Um, so uh, we all learn and interested uh, in your you know, abstract that you presented. Uh, so thank you everyone uh, for listening. So uh, tune into your room now for more video and news updates. Uh, and you can also follow me at uh, my Twitter handle, Yusuf. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I'm reporting for Room Now for ULAR 2021. And I have a very special guest here today. It's Dr. Kristen Young. She's a recent graduate of UT Southwestern, my alma mater, um, from the Rheumatology Fellowship Program. And she actually is the first author and presented her study here at ULAR. Welcome, Kristen. Hi there, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. So um, you were actually studying about how the pandemic had impacted rheumatology training. Could you tell me a little bit about how this study came about and what you found? Yeah, so I myself am ending up or ending my rheumatology fellowship this year. And um, at the start of the pandemic, lots of changes were made to the to my training program and many of the other trainees that are involved with the Global Rheumatology Alliance. So me and um, several other trainees involved with the GRA, you know, worked together to develop this survey along with program directors to um, administer across the world to see how rheumatology trainees were doing during the pandemic. Right. And I know that you all have been affected a lot because at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, everything was shut down. You couldn't even attend clinics and we had to switch so quickly to telehealth. So what do you think, um, I mean, just from your experience and also from talking to other people and from the survey, I mean, what were the main, main issues that you uncovered? Yeah, we also have an abstract that, uh, at ULAR that specifically addresses telehealth and um, rheumatology trainees. And yes, there was a rapid adoption. We went from about 13% of trainees doing telehealth before the pandemic to over 80% during the pandemic. And that's a rapid adoption of telemedicine. That abstract addresses telemedicine specifically. But other areas that we found generally within the rheumatology training um, you know, participants in the survey is there is a lot of um, other domains that uh, trainees identified as being negatively affected by the pandemic. This included things like clinics and consults and ultrasonography training, um, didactic training, along with other clinic procedures. 
And I think the pivot to telehealth along with all these other training um, domains kind of go hand in hand. Um, and then uh, lastly, there was a, a increase in rheumatology trainees that um, did identify about 68% uh, reported increases in work-related stress, and then also about 50% indicating that they were burnt out. Right. And then I also found um, that you, you had written that 25% didn't even feel that their skills were up to par. I mean, how do you think that these trainees are going to make up for that? I think, and that, you know, that is concerning to have trainees feel like their skills aren't up to par or that they feel like um, their growth as a rheumatology trainee has been stunted by this. Um, my, my hope as a trainee is that the time, you know, uh, period afterwards, uh, we have ample amount of time to see these consults, to do procedures, to catch up. And I think I, my hope is that we catch up in that time period. But I do think this does you know, ask the question of, um, do we need to resurvey people or do we need to implement um, any sort of um, kind of remediation? I don't like to use the word remediation, but any sort of, um, you know, online training or something to get um, trainees up to speed or even see how they're doing a year into it. Right. And one of the beauties um, during this pandemic, because we are such a virtual world, I mean, even this Congress is virtual. So being able to access educational material has been incredible. I mean, from the ACR convergence to the ULAR virtual Congress. Um, and I know that like the trainees also have access to other electronic didactic materials. Did you use that? Yes, that's one of the things that I um, benefited greatly from uh, during my training is all of the ACR and then even international um, events that were hosted online and virtually. So I was able to participate in the ACR, like they had a viral lecture, a VIP lecture. Those sorts of things were incredibly helpful for my training. And then I'm interested in auto-inflammatory disorders. So being able to participate in like the international auto-inflammatory conferences was I think new and then also a great opportunity for, for me personally. And I think a lot of trainees are now learning to access those online uh, materials. Yeah. And I think that burnout and stress also um, occur even without the pandemic to, to tell you the truth. Um, what do you think program directors should do with the information that, that you put out there? I mean, how can they help? Yeah, I think every, I mean, I'm not, a program director, I'm just a trainee, um, but I'm certainly interested in medical education. So I think this data can help with reflection to see, you know, check in on your trainees, see how they're doing, um, and see how they're doing a year into this. I know many programs have gone back to almost normal or pre-pandemic um, didactics and procedures, um, but then also knowing that um, Trainees are experiencing stress and burnout. It is at a higher level. Um, in a previous ACR abstract, they did uh, look at some uh, burnout, and the burnout was very low at that time in rheumatology trainees. We usually, you know, we're usually a typically happy group. And um, I, uh, I think the good news is that most trainees were very happy with their choice with rheumatology. So it seems like this is a perhaps a temporary. Um, you know, a, a temporary change and um, program directors, whatever they can do to support if that includes, you know, and that could, that should definitely be something that is like program dependent and really reflecting on these results. 
Yes, and I hope also like, you know, leadership in like the major rheumatology um, communities um, hear what you have to say, because I, I believe that, you know, rheumatology training is, is essential. I mean, you do training even after you graduate, um, but the time there, it, it is a time for you to be able to see new things, ask your questions. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm still in my rheumatology training, even 20 years from now, working with Jack. Um, anyways, but thank you so much for your time, Kristen. And I really appreciate um, your effort and your work during this uh, pandemic with the GRA. And I mean, I know that you're very active on social media. So follow her on Twitter, follow me on Twitter, kdell at 2011. Um, your Twitter handle, Crystal, uh, Kristen is at Kristen Young. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, I hope you have a great day. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Hi everyone, this is Aurélie Najm from the University of Glasgow, UK, reporting for REM Now at Chula 2021. Among all the very nice data that have been presented today, I wanted to highlight a few studies because I think that um, they're pretty relevant, but also they're exploring some aspects um, that have not been very much explored uh, until now. And while there is a lot of interest in pregnancy in rheumatic diseases, um, and it's a key area of research, when it comes to men's fertility and the impact that rheumatic diseases could have, there's actually a very few reports. In that respect, the IFAME fertility um, study presented today in two oral presentations, OP0211 and OP0212, by Dr. Perez Garcia was very interesting. So it's basically a multi-center, cross-sectional, retrospective Dutch study. And they conducted the survey where they basically ask male patients about fertility and, and about um, if they were able to conceive and have children. And um, it's basically quite, quite interesting to, to see that uh, inflammatory arthritis do impact male fertility. So it's basically not true for every man. It's mostly true for men on whom the diagnosis of inflammatory arthritis has occurred during the peak of the male reproductive age. So men that were diagnosed below the age of 40 had a total and a mean total number of children. Who, which was reduced compared to both general population, but also compared to men that had a later diagnosis that were diagnosed after the age of 41. Um, and it was also the case for a lower fertility rate and a higher rate of involuntary childlessness. And in addition to that, men diagnosed below the age of 40 were more frequently evaluated for infertility. Um, and so obviously that there can be a lot of causes for this observation and this study was not um, exploring uh, these aspects, but um, um, I kind of hope it's going to pave the way for further uh, studies um, in that aspect. And uh, in addition to that, they also looked into uh, pregnancies um, from these males partners. 
so who obviously don't have any inflammatory arthritis. But very interestingly, even after adjusting for maternal age and the year of pregnancy, they could show that the, these men's partners had a higher risk of miscarriage, um, but no other pregnancy uh, complications. So I think I think overall there can be quite a lot of um, thoughts that can be given to this. You know, it could be for biological reasons, psychological reasons, and probably a mix of that. Um, and I'm pretty sure that in the in the upcoming years we're going to have much more information on that on that aspect. So um, that's what I was wanted to, to to share with you today. Um, stay tuned for more fascinating. Uh, clinical data at Shula 2021 on rumnow.com and follow Aurélie Raimo on Twitter. Thank you. Hello everyone, I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, I'm reporting from ULR 2021 uh, for Room Now. Um, and I'm here to talk to you today about a study that was presented in the opening uh, plenary abstract session on Wednesday by Dr. Palamaki um, on MUC5B promoter variant and long-term incidence of ILD in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so this was a population biobank study of uh, 250,000 uh, people. Um, among that, they had 5,500 with uh, rheumatoid arthritis and 178 of those um, had rheumatoid arthritis-related interstitial lung disease. So it's a little bit of background first. Um, MUC5B promoter variant um, has been found to be associated first with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis um, and subsequently when it was looked at in rheumatoid arthritis also found to associate with rheumatoid arthritis related interstitial um, lung disease. So these authors were seeking to better quantify um, the strength of those associations um, and the strength of the risks of MUC5B in the different uh, populations. So essentially they had four different groups. They had patients who had uh, rheumatoid arthritis and had the MUC5B promoter variant. They had patients who had rheumatoid arthritis and did not have the promoter variant. Then they had non-rheumatoid um, um, people uh, from the general population who had the MUC5B promoter variant and they had people from the general population who did not have the promoter variant. And they looked at the risk of uh, developing interstitial lung disease in those four different groups. Um, very interesting findings. Um, so first of all, they found that having rheumatoid arthritis without the promoter variant was actually more strongly associated with interstitial lung disease um, than the general population who had the promoter variant. So 5.2% risk in rheumatoid arthritis with, without the promoter variant and a 3.9% risk in the general population who had the promoter variant. And that's interesting because the, our perception of the promoter variant, the MUC5B promoter variant, is that it's quite a strong um, risk predictor of, of interstitial lung disease, but it seems that rheumatoid arthritis alone is uh, a stronger um, risk of developing interstitial lung disease. And then if you looked at people who had both rheumatoid arthritis and the MUC5B promoter variant, 
they seem to have a synergistic multiplicative effect. So it increased even further to 14.5%, which is really quite a high risk um, of interstitial lung disease. And then um, as the final kind of control, um, people in the general population who did not have this promoter variant, their risk of developing interstitial lung disease was 1.3%. So that's kind of the baseline risk. And we can judge that kind of step up of risks from that. So if you have the MUC5B promoter variant, you increase that up to 3.9%. If you just have rheumatoid arthritis on its own, you increase it up to 5.2%. And if you have both of those together, it's up to a whopping 14.5%, which is, again, really quite a high um, figure. So how is this important? Right at the minute, uh, probably not uh, very much so, as we don't really know what to do with this information. But obviously, if we can identify this promoter variant in patients who have rheumatoid arthritis, we know which patients are perhaps more likely um, to develop um, interstitial lung disease. Um, and that increase is probably at the level where if you could do something about it, you probably would want to intervene. We don't quite know what we might do um, in uh, these patients to prevent um, interstitial lung disease uh, from happening. Um, but that space is also rapidly developing as, as we're looking at um, new treatments that might treat um, rheumatoid arthritis-related interstitial lung disease. It is possible that we will find an agent that it would be better for patients with rheumatoid arthritis um, to be on, that one biologic agent, for example, might be better uh, than another one. Um, and perhaps if we can check this, this promoter variant, um, and then we can choose a better biologic for the individual um, patient. And I'll be talking more about that um, in another um, video uh, from uh, this uh, conference. So watch out for that. Um, you can follow me at Twitter. I'm uh, at Richard P.A. Conway. And please uh, remember uh, to follow Room Now for more um, updates um, from ULAR 2021. Hi, you are 2021. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, reporting for RoomNow.com. The evidence-based recommendations from the Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis, better known as GRAPA, were presented at ULAR 2021. The goal, as per the 2009 recommendations, was to develop recommendations based on the best scientific evidence and for the optimal treatment of psoriasis and patients with PSA. This was quoted from Dr. Laura Coates from Oxford, who detailed this in abstract number OP0229. So since the latest in 2015, there have been multiple changes, and I'm going to highlight these for you. So the new primary overarching principle is that treatment should be centered around patient-specific domains with an emphasis on shared decision-making with the patients. The comorbidity domains have now been split into two groups, related conditions, which now include uveitis and IBD, and of course, comorbidities. IL-17 inhibitors have strong recommendations in DMARD-naive and IR peripheral arthritis, axial arthritis, enthesitis, dactylitis, psoriasis, and nail psoriasis patients. IL-23 inhibitors have strong recommendations in DMARD-naive and IR peripheral arthritis, enthesitis, dactylitis, 
psoriasis, nailed psoriasis, and IBD patients. JAK inhibitors have strong recommendations in DMARD naive and IR peripheral arthritis, axial arthritis, enthesitis, dactylitis, and psoriasis patients. That's a mouthful. And new recommendations for TNF inhibitors, excluding a Tanercept, IL-23 and, pardon me, IL-12 and 23 inhibitors, IL-23 inhibitors, JAK inhibitors, and methotrexate in IBD patients, and TNF inhibitors, again, excluding Tanercept and cyclosporin use for patients with uveitis. Recommendations against IL-6 inhibitors have been expanded. And then, of course, phosphodiesterase 4 recommendations have also expanded um, to include enthesitis, dactylitis, and nail psoriasis. So that was a lot of update for you, but this update also includes a position statement from GRAPA uh, based on biosimilars, detailing that biosimilars must be approved through a robust regulatory review. It also details that biomimics and intended copies are not the same as biosimilars. And this statement also requests that pharmacovigilance and periodic reevaluation to ensure quality for biosimilar products is, an, is important and necessary. And it reminds the audience that there were no biosimilar studies that were conducted in psoriatic arthritis patients, let alone regarding drug switches and immunogenicity. So, and as such, this data can be extrapolated in this patient population only. So there's also another new position statement regarding tapering and discontinuation of therapies. It basically revolves around the decision to taper and that should be with your patients and through education. You wanna highlight the benefits and of course the potential drawbacks when talking about this with patients. So as a reminder, GRAPA experts are worldwide. Rheumatologists, dermatologists, and patient research partners or PRPs. The, these recommendations are for adults who have psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. These were done with symptomatic or systematic searches from Medline, Embase, and Cochrane Central. And these were conducted since 2015 guidelines until August of 2020, and the conference presentations in that time frame between 2017 and 2020. Additional searches were completed for comorbidities and related conditions, and the methodology remains the same with the grade methodology. These allowed for PICO questions, which refine for each domain. So. Overall, this allows for treatment recommendations either to be for or against with strong conditional or low or, um, pardon me, strong or conditional levels associated uh, with each recommendation. So next steps will be to finalize all the comorbidities in the table and to present the data at the GRAPA July 2021 meeting. Final GRAPA recommendations, including the paper and then of course the eight domain paper with those groups will subsequently be published later this year. So to see a visual of these guidelines, go to ULAR 2020 Room, Room Now website, and you can see my article that includes a visual uh, graphic of these particular recommendations. So stay tuned to roomnow.com for more updates from ULAR 2021, and follow me on Twitter at UpToTate. So, hi, this is Paul Sulenik from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, reporting for Rome Now from the Virtual Euler Congress 2021. 
I'm talking today uh, with Dr. Alan Saboti uh, from the University Hospital of Udine, a consulted rheumatologist, about his poster zero uh, one four five predictors of psoriatic arthritis development in psoriasis patients, a systematic literature review and meta-analysis. So welcome and thank you for taking the time to join him. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. So um, why do you see now the time has come to look at the progresses from psoriasis to psoriatic arthritis? Oh, skin and or nail involvement usually precede articular involvement in psoriatic disease. And accurate identification of predictors of PSA in psoriasis patient could help early PSA diagnosis through a dedicated follow-up in psoriasis patient at high risk for transition and a potential interception of PSA without extra costs. Since a psoriasis patient in transition could need a therapy that could work both for skin and joints. And so I think that these are the two main issues that we need to answer in the next time. Okay. Well, definitely ex exciting times uh, coming up for uh, psoriatic and psoriasis patients. So what are the, the key features that you were able to synthesize from the SLR? Oh, this uh, SLR is the first on this topic. And regarding skin and nail, uh, we identified that, that when expressed as units, PASI score showed a weak predicted value for the development of PSA. On the other hand, a predicted value clearly emerged when the class of, classes of severity were compared. Then, with regard to nail involvement, an increased risk of PSA development among psoriasis patients in terms of cumulative incidence emerge only for nail pitting. Another issue very important is regarding musculoskeletal complaints. As for rheumatoid arthritis, also in psoriatic disease, the risk of PSA development in psoriasis patients with arthralgia was about two times greater than in subjects without arthralgia. And lastly, regarding imaging, psoriasis patients with imaging detecting musculoskeletal inflammation or damage were almost four times more likely to develop PSA. This is the four important points that we could synthesize in our systematic literature review. Other potential predictors were obesity and family history of PSA. Okay, well, this is uh, already quite, uh, quite a good overview. And there is also an overlap when you look at the parallel um, kind of engagements in the field of rheumatoid arthritis, uh, where ongoing initiatives over the last year also point out on ultrasound findings uh, and in, of course, in rheumatoid arthritis, the, the, it is a bit easier with defining populations concerning antibodies uh, in, in, in opposite to psoriatic arthritis patients. But how would you say, what, what, what are the next steps to, to, to fine tune this, to better um, stratify risk assessment? 
A good question. Uh, I think that these systematic literary review bring us uh, two important key messages. The first uh, is that we have uh, long-term predictors of PSA development in PSO patients, like severity of skin psoriasis and nail pitting, but we have also short-term predictors of PSA development in PSO patients like arthralgia and uh, subclinical inflammation detected by imaging that could be very useful to uh, try to uh, plan um, study for interception of PSA development in PSO patients. On this scenario, the upcoming Euler task force on the Euler points to consider for the definition of clinical and imaging features suspicious for progression to psoriatic arthritis, you will, you will surely help the design of longitudinal studies or PSA interception studies. I think that we need more evidence, more longitudinal studies on this topic to improve our practice for prevention and interception of PSA in PSO patients. That sounds terrific. So um, thank you very much for taking the time in this busy period of the EULA week. Um, I'm looking forward to what is coming up. Thank you, Paul. Thank you and thank you very much uh, to all of you uh, for listening and, and watching this short interview uh, with Dr. Alan Sabotti.